prayer that we're commanded in Scripture, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. If there's one practice in our world that is associated with religion, it's probably the practice of prayer. You pick your religion in our world today, and it will have some form, some kind of practice of prayer. Muslims, for example, are well known for their practice of praying five times a day towards Mecca. I remember being in the airport one time flying out, and a devout Muslim spread his prayer rug out and was praying before, before he got on the flight. Really, in one sense, I was convicted by that. Here he is willing to sort of make a spectacle of himself in public to, to, to do what his religion calls him to do. Roman Catholics, of course, are famous for praying with rosary beads and having set prayers or during this Lenten season. Many will be doing that more and more. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of traveling to Nepal and visited, I got to visit a, a Buddhist stupa, and they have prayer flags that are going all over and there are prayer wheels that are spun as the, as the mantra is recited. You're not supposed to spin those backwards, by the way, uh, as Rachel tried and then our flight got canceled. I don't know if there's any connection between those two things. Uh, but every religion has some kind of prayer, and, and that's one of the distinctive features when we think of Islam or Roman Catholicism or, or Buddhism there are these forms of prayer. Across the city of Kathmandu, while we were there, every morning you would hear bells being rung as people would wake up their gods to go and pray to their gods. But if we think about it, we as evangelical Christians, what are we known for? I, I, I tried to find some information about this, wasn't able to find any accurate information, but just going on a hunch, if we were to ask the average person in the United States of America, what's sort of the distinctive feature of evangelical Christianity? I don't think that very many people would say, oh, they're devout praying, right? If they think evangelical Christians, what are they known for? I don't know that people would say it's, it's our praying, it's our devout approach to God. I think probably most people would think of politics. Most of the studies I looked for to try to find out information of how evangelicals are viewed has to do with politics. Evangelicalism has basically become a voting block in our country, and that's sad. We're not known for our, our convictions or for our piety much less for our prayer. And I don't know, maybe part of that has to do with a hostile culture and, and not wanting to understand what we as Christians believe. But I'm afraid that in large part has to do with our lack of prayer. We're known for our activism. We're known for our, uh, our, the, the actions we do when we gather and when we worship. We're not very well known for our prayer. Sadly, I would say this is true in many evangelical Christ, uh, churches across our land. There's maybe two minutes of praying when we gather. Quick prayer at the beginning that's offered spontaneously without any thought. A quick prayer at the end before we rush off to make it down to neighbors before the Methodists, right? We're not known for our praying. Our services are not marked by repeated prayer, something we're intentionally trying to build in here into the life of our church. Many, many churches have canceled prayer meetings. When churches want to start changing things up, the first thing to go is prayer meeting. Nobody comes to that anyway. We don't need that. We we need more activity and and, and prayer. I mean, yeah, it's good, but we really need to organize better. We're known for our conferences, for our organizations, for our denominations. But sadly, not for our praying. 
On a personal level, I think we, be, we, we, we rationalize it this way. I'm, I'm way too busy. I've got so much to do today. I've got a big, long to-do list to tackle. I've got a schedule to keep. I've got to be at work at a certain time. And, man, my boss, if I'm late, this, this is not good. And so prayer is hurried. It is rushed. It is frenzied. It is distracted. We tell ourselves, if I spend too much time praying, the dishes won't get done. The oil won't be changed. Money won't be made. And in the midst of our frantic activity, we miss out on the joy of seeking God. They say this frenzied distraction has become the deadly enemy of focused devotion. Distraction is the deadly enemy of devotion to Christ. But I think there's something more serious going on in our prayerlessness. As I look into my own heart, as this passage has been a mirror to me as I've examined my own heart over the last few weeks. At the bottom of it, the reason we don't pray is we do not believe. The reason we don't pray is we don't believe. Here's what I mean by that. We, we are convinced that we can do things without God, and we are not conscious and cognizant of our utter dependence on Him. We have so much faith in ourselves and very little faith in God, very little faith in the power and the necessity of prayer. Maybe I have a question for you. If you truly believed that God would work through prayer and that God would change you through prayer, would you not pray more? Think sort of deep down, we think, yeah, prayer is a good thing to do, but it's not a, a necessary thing to do. In this text here in, in Luke 11, Jesus gives us one of the, the longest teachings on prayer in the entire Bible, 13 verses, that he, he deals with this topic of prayer, giving us his very own instruction about what prayer is and how we should go about doing it. It is a, it is a powerful antidote to our prayerlessness. And even when we do pray, by the way, you ever find yourself sort of just praying things that you don't even know what you mean, right? Just pray for journey mercies, and Lord, would you bless so-and-so, and just be with them. And, and, and we're like, well, what, what does this even mean? Would you bless the food to our bodies? Like, well, what, what do we mean by that? We just throw these sort of phrases we hear from other people, and we put them together, and we don't think about what we're saying. You ever find that your prayers are just sort of vague? Lord, would you just kind of bless everyone and, and, and be with these? And, 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 and we're, we don't really know what we're asking. And if God answered that prayer, we wouldn't recognize it because we didn't even know what we were praying for. Do you ever find that your prayers become flippant? You kind of come into God's presence and, and the prayers are just kind of, oh, hey, God, what's up? Let me just throw some things out there, pray about a few things, and, and we'll see you later. Get out of here and skedaddle. Often our prayers are vague. They are flippant. They are hurried. They're selfish. Our prayers are just sort of a laundry list of my wants and wishes that I make known to God, and then we're on our way, and all too often our prayers are begrudging. Okay, I'm supposed to pray, so I better go pray. This is what Christians do. Let's just I'll get, do it and get it over with. The, the, the vision of prayer that is presented in Luke 11, 1 to 13 is just the opposite of that. It is beautiful. It is compelling. Jesus is calling here to pray in a distinctly Christian kind of way. He's calling us to pray reverently, not, not selfishly. He's calling us to, pay, to pray passionately, not in a begrudging kind of way. He's calling us to pray persistently, not in a hurried kind of way. He's calling us to pray eagerly. He calls us to pray eagerly. So let's dive in and start walking through this text. What does Jesus teach us about prayer? And here's my hope today is that your heart, you won't just be beat over the head feeling guilty this morning. Well, I need to pray more. Let me, yeah, just feel bad about it. But that you will be encouraged and compelled by, the, by just the generosity and this portrayal of God that beckons us into his presence. Jesus says this first off, beginning in verse 1, that we should pray distinctly. Prayer must be distinct. 
So verse 1, it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place. One of the highlights of the Gospel of Luke is it will emphasize the prayer life of Jesus. It's showing us Jesus as the perfect man. And one of the things that it does is look at his prayer life, the communion he has with his Father. So just for an example, before he chooses the disciples, we see Jesus praying. Before he goes to the cross, we see Jesus praying. At his baptism, Luke tells us, and Luke alone tells us, that Jesus is praying. Prayer was a central aspect of Jesus' life while he was on this earth and his incarnate status. While he was praying in a certain place, we don't know where it was, and it doesn't really matter when and where this was, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. There was something distinct and different about the prayer life of Jesus. We must not get the idea that these disciples were like, man, we have no idea how to pray. We never do it. They're, they're, one of the great hallmarks, the pillars of Jewish piety was prayer. Okay, we read in Matthew 7, right? Jesus talks about, you know, when you pray, when you give money, when you fast. Those were the three parts of being a good religious Jew is give money, pray, and fast. Synagogue services began with 18 benedictions. There were prayers that were offered. They had the examples of David and, and Daniel in the Old Testament to go on. So don't get the idea that these guys are just like, we, we, we have no clue how to pray. Rather, what this is doing is that when they saw Jesus pray, it was unlike anything they had ever seen before. Jesus prayed in a way that no rabbi ever prayed. Jesus prayed in a way that, that no disciple ever prayed. They're like, we want to pray like this. Wow. They were blown away. This is calling us, when I say pray distinctly, we are to pray in a Christ-like kind of way. Pray in a Christ-like kind of way. They're just overwhelmed. This is like someone who thinks, I'm a pretty good baseball player, right? They're off there. I love playing baseball as a kid. And you're like, man, I'm pretty good at this. And then we would go down to Phoenix and go to a spring training game, and you're just like, oh, man, I'm, I'm no good at baseball. Here they are just... They're just throwing the ball, like hitting a strike all the way across the outfield. Like, this is incredible. Here they are hitting a 100-mile-an-hour fastball over the bleachers. You show me how to do it. That's what these disciples are like. They're like little leaguers who thought they were pretty good, but now they have come in and seen a Hall of Famer who, who knows what they're like. Show me how to do what you do. Pray in a Christ-like kind of way. I'm convinced that Jesus' prayers were not vague and flippant like so many of ours are. I believe that Jesus' prayers were saturated with biblical language. We say praying distinctly, praying in a Christ-like kind of way. What if our prayers were filled with biblical language? That we, we open the Bible up and we, we, we mind the Bible for ways to pray. We prayed the word of God. I think God, praying according to God's will in part, is going to be praying in a way that not only agrees with the Bible's message, but might even borrow the, the Bible's language. I doubt that Jesus prayed these vague things. Lord, would you just help all the disciples? Lord, would you, you know, just kind of be with the nation? But I think he prayed specifically according to the mind and will of God because he was saturated in the word of God. Some of the most powerful prayers I have heard have been prayers that have been just simply filled with the language of the Bible. Now, you can't pray the language of the Bible if you don't know the Bible. So go to the Bible to, to learn and understand who God is so you can address him in a way that is distinct. But then look at the rest of the verse. Look back to, to, to verse 1. Teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples to pray. See, apparently various rabbis back in these days taught their disciples to pray in unique and distinct ways. So if, you were a, if your, your rabbi was John, you would pray in a way that John taught you to pray. If you followed a, a rabbi, Ben Eleazar or Halal or whoever it was, whoever that rabbi was, you would pray in a way that everyone would be, oh, the way you pray associates you with your rabbi. 
Beloved, we are to pray in such a way that associates us with Jesus Christ. We are to pray in distinctly Christian ways, not just Christ-like, but distinctly Christian ways. If the prayers that we offer are, are, are just sort of prayers to a generic God that, a, that a, a Muslim or a Jew could say amen to, we're doing it wrong. We should pray in a way that is distinctly in the name of Jesus, on the basis of the gospel, for things that are rooted in the gospel. We are to pray in a distinctly Christian kind of way. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just a little magical phrase we tack on the end of the prayer that like, oh, that's what sort of sends the prayer up. I'm sort of putting it together, and that's sort of letting the balloon go to float off into space. Praying in Jesus' name is saying that I have been united by faith to Jesus, and I'm coming into God's presence not as Sam Sinclair on my merits, but I'm coming into God's presence on the basis and on the merit of Jesus Christ as my high priest and as my Savior. Praying in Jesus' name is more than just words that we utter mindlessly. Let me suggest this to you. Instead of ending your prayer in Jesus' name, try this just to sort of get this in your mind. Try starting your prayers occasionally in Jesus' name. So, Dear Heavenly Father, blah, 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 in Jesus' name, amen. Start off, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. It reminds us that I call him Father because I have been united with the Son. Distinctly Christian. What else is distinctly Christian is keeping the cross at the center and reminding myself that everything that I'm asking for, I'm asking for on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. Our prayers ought to be shot through with scriptural language and shot through with gospel categories. So pray distinctly. Not, not, not vague prayers, not insipid prayers that are just like, there it is out there, but give it some thought. This is going to require thought when we pray. This is going to require sitting down with an open Bible when we pray. But let me move on here to the second, second hallmark of, this, of, of this, this prayer that Jesus is teaching to us. We should pray distinctly in a Christ-like and a Christian way. But number two, we should pray reverently. So verse 2 now, we get, in, we get a version of the Lord's Prayer. I led us in praying the Lord's Prayer a minute ago. We have a very famous version in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a longer, fuller version. What we have here in Luke is a completely different setting. This is not the exact same teaching setting. But get this, good teachers repeat themselves. Good teachers repeat themselves. Okay, so I have friends who went through classes at PCC with certain teachers and they got, guess what? They got the same thing from those teachers as I got. They might have used slightly different wording, but the lectures were basically the same. Good teachers repeat themselves often. So Jesus gives a version of the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, and here he gives another edition of it. It's not identical. The language is a little bit different, which reminds us this is not a magical formula, though it's not wrong to pray it. But rather, it is, a, it is an outline. Now, just a quick word about the wording of the Lord's Prayer here in Luke. It is briefer, it is more punchy, and the way that this is, the way that this is worded in the original is briefer, uh, though what happened over time as people copied this down, the language of Matthew's prayer that was more familiar to them kind of crept back into their copies of Luke. So the way this is worded in the King James is, Our Father, which art in heaven, the, the, the original Greek just simply reads, Father. Now, we have that other language in Matthew, but you can understand a scribe copying that would be like, hey, I know Matthew's version really well, and that language just kind of comes in inadvertently. So this is the way, it would have, the way that this is worded in the Greek is, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive the one who's indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Same prayers we have in Matthew, but just a little briefer. A couple of the requests are not included. But here's the point. It's not about the magical words. It is about approaching God reverently. You notice in verse 2, the focus here is all on the relationship with God, on the priorities of God. 
in verse 3 we, and 4, we have the sort of the, the needs that we have. But we start off addressing God as Father. By the way, that's a distinctly Christian way to pray. We recognize Father, which means that I've been adopted by the Son. I'm coming to Him in the name of Jesus. Sometimes it's said that Jews never prayed to God as Father. Well, that's not true. We read in 1 Chronicles 29 that David addresses God as as the father of of Israel. There's only 14 times in the Old Testament where God is called Father. Jesus brings this this idea of God as Father, and this is loaded with meaning. Back in, in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus said this, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father. No man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son. The Father and the Son have a unique relationship that goes to eternity past. And here's the the amazing news. As Christians, we get brought into that. We have a relationship with God, and we come to him not as, hey, pal, what's going on? But we come to him as Father. That label Father is not formulaic. It is relational. When you pray, dear Heavenly Father, and just go into the prayer, Father, pause on that. This calls us to fellowship. This calls us to have a relationship with the Father in heaven. This is revolutionary. This expresses our dependence and our affection for God. This is not just, okay, i got to pray. Do it today. No, I, I'm spending time with my dad. I am talking to the one who loves me more than any being could possibly love me. This is an expression of relationship. The next petition, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Now, I used to think that meant stop and praise God for who he is. By the way, we ought to stop and praise God for who he is. I, th- I took that to be, hallowed is your name. Like, let me just say some things that are true about God. But notice the wording says, hallowed be thy name. Not hallowed is, but hallowed be. This is a request. This is in the imperative. It's saying, God, would you hallow your name? You're, you're requesting for God to glorify himself. The idea of name in the Bible, of course, is not just, oh, here's a title. You know, it's not just a, a label by which you are known. But names biblically expresses the idea of reputation. So a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. It's not just, well, I would rather have a really awesome name. Let me go down to the courthouse and change it so I've got a really cool name. Right? That'd be awesome. That's better than great riches. No, the idea of a name is your reputation. Right? If you're a business owner and your name is on the sign, your reputation is wrapped up in what you do. That's closer to the idea biblically. To say, ask for God's name to be hallowed is for God's name to be set apart and treated as holy. So we have one of the Ten Commandments says that that we ought not to take the name of God in vain. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That is the opposite of hallowing God's name. So don't take God's name in vain. Don't treat it as a light thing. Don't treat God's reputation and his worth as something to be trampled upon. Rather, pray that God's name and his reputation and his glory would be seen to be holy. We are asking God, the first, the, the first priority in our praying is praying for God to glorify himself. God is utmost in his own affections. Here's what I mean. God loves himself more than he loves anything else. If he loved something else more than himself, then that would be God. God is utmost in his own affections, and his glory is the the greatest priority that he has. And this prayer is saying God's greatest priority is his glory, and it ought to be our greatest priority. Now, when we pray this, hallowed be thy name, God, would you glorify yourself? We're asking for God to glorify himself on the stage of history. We're asking for God to glorify himself in the needs of the nations. We're asking for God to do this in and through us. Hallowed be your name 
Let your name be hallowed. Let your name be seen as holy in my job. Let your name be seen as holy in my worship. Let your name, God, be seen as holy in my thought life. Let your name be holy in my speech. Let your name be holy in everything that I do. That's what we're, what we're praying. This ought to be the first priority in our praying. Praying this way drills down into our hearts the reality that God's glory is to be our aim in all things. The next petition, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Now, what are we talking about with the kingdom? It means there is a king. It means there's people who are being ruled. Jesus comes preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. He's the king, and he's calling people to submit to his kingship through repentance and faith. So on one level, praying thy kingdom come, we are praying for the gospel to advance among the nations. In one sense, when we pray thy kingdom come, we are praying for the reign and the rule of Jesus in the lives of his people to be advanced to other people. But I don't think that that's the emphasis here. Verse 20 talks about the, the present nature of the kingdom. If I, with the finger of God, cast out demons, no doubt the kingdom is come upon you. There's a sense in which, yes, the kingdom has come in the person of Jesus, but there is another sense in which the kingdom has not yet arrived. Listen, Jesus does not yet rule and reign over everything uh, on this planet. Right? There is still death that must be brought under his feet. Yes, he has all authority in heaven, but he has not yet exerted that rule on earth. He's going to come back one day. He's going to come back as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is going to destroy death forever. He's going to establish a reign on this earth and rule in perfect righteousness. But for now, death still reigns. Sin still dominates. Our world is broken. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, yeah, we're praying for the advance of the gospel. But I think more importantly, we are praying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. This world's broken. This world's full of despair and sickness. These are all the results of the fall. Every death is the result of the fall. Every sickness is a result of the fall. Every war is a result of the fall. Every hurricane and earthquake and natural disaster is a result of the curse that came as a result of the fall. One day, it'll be no more, and Jesus will reign. This is a prayer for the glorious return of Jesus that's described in the book of Revelation. Let me just read this to you, Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes are as a flame as fire, and on his head were many crowns. King, king. And, on his, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, which were, or the armies which were in heaven, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what we are praying for when we say, thy kingdom come. Jesus, return. Fix this broken world. So yes, the kingdom in one sense has come, the preaching of the gospel. But in another sense, we look for it and we long for it. When we pray this way, we are praying for the ultimate destruction of evil, the obliteration of sin, the judgment of injustice, the righting of every wrong. This is a lament of the world's brokenness. Now think about what this does for us when we pray, thy kingdom come. It calls me away from my little kingdom of self. I want to be me. I want to rule and I want to reign. I want to, be, I want to be king in my marriage and I want to be king at work and I want to be king at church and I want to be king in all these areas. I want to be king. This reminds me, no, Jesus is king. Thy kingdom come and push me off the little throne of my heart. 
Here's what else, what else this does. It reminds me that there, there's no ultimate hope for this world to be found in this world. Far too often people will want to look to a political system or to an activist or to some piece of legislation to, to fix the world. It ain't going to happen. By the way, it's always a bad thing when people try to bring the kingdom in. They try to bring in utopia, try to bring the kingdom in however they understand it through the force of the sword. Always been bad. Like the worst dictatorships in history were the ones that were set up to be like, let's set up this kingdom, this utopia. No, Jesus will set it up. We don't need to look to men. We don't need to look to politicians. We need to look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when I say pray reverently, here's what I mean. When we pray, our priorities ought to be what God's priorities are. God's priorities are are his reputation and his fame being known among the nations. God's priority is his rule being exerted one day on this world, and I should pray in line with him. Now, why should I pray this way? Let me give you an important thought. Prayer expresses my priorities. I, I pray it expresses what is important to me, but it also shapes my priorities. I don't ultimately pray to change God. I pray to change myself. Let's be honest, most of us are more concerned about our own reputation than we are about God's. We're more concerned about our rule than we are about Christ's rule. But as I begin to pray, let your name be hallowed, it reminds me that that's what's important, not not my name. Let your kingdom come, it reminds me that it's God's kingdom, not my own, that matters, and and it shapes my priorities. So we pray divine priorities because prayer expresses our priorities, but it also shapes them. Prayer is one of the chief instruments through which God conforms me to the image of his son. Let's pray reverently. Pray with God at the center. Pray seeing God's glory as the ultimate aim. Let's move on here to a third principle of prayer. We must pray dependently. Give us this day, or give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. So we've now gone from these vertical priorities to the horizontal priorities of daily life. We are to pray dependently. We're praying in complete and total dependence on God. That is what we are called to do here. By the way, I want to just note something in passing. Do you notice the pronouns? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us day by day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. This prayer is also meant to be corporate. We tend to think of prayer as a very, very private and individualized thing. And by the way, we should pray privately and individually. We should enter our prayer closet, as Matthew says. But this kind of prayer reminds us that we are part of a community of saints. It reminds us that we are part of a family. The fact that he is our father means that we're brothers and sisters, and we ought to pray together. That's why we take time in our morning services to pray not just once, not just twice, but usually three or four times any Sunday morning. It reminds us that we're praying together corporately. And not just us, but generations of Christians going to the past have prayed this kind of way. We get to stand on their shoulders. When we take the language of the Bible, like the the, the prayer of confession in Daniel 9, or the prayer that's in Ezra, or the prayers of the Psalms, it reminds us that we are part of a single people of God through history, praying corporately, just an aside. Anyway, back to this text. We are to pray dependently. Give us day by day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not to temptation. We can divide these needs that we have into two categories. We have two basic categories of needs. We have physical needs, and we have spiritual needs, and both, both of these are expressed. And I, and I say we pray dependently because unless God answers these prayers and provides for us, we have no source of provision in ourselves. So the idea of daily bread, 
The idea of bread, it's not just, okay, the only thing that Christians are allowed to eat is bread. A bread-only diet is what we must eat, because the Bible says only pray for daily bread. No, that's not the idea here. Bread is sort of a metaphor for the things you need to survive. So daily bread would be for the necessities of life, food, shelter, clothing, those kinds of things. Water. It's the things we need to survive. So give us, the way this is worded is quite interesting. Give us the, the, the what we need things for today, the necessities for today. We, we sang just before the message, I need thee every hour. I need thee. Oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee. We could have also sung this morning moment by moment. I'm kept in your love. We could have sung day by day and with each and passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. The point is this. We are dependent upon God for every single breath. Just breathe for a second. In and out. You feel your heartbeat or your pulse. Every beat of your heart, every time your diaphragm brings air into your lungs, is a gift from God that you are dependent on Him for. He's the God in whose hand your life is. Now, how often do we consciously think of that? How many of you all are planning to eat lunch today? That lunch, maybe it's in the crock pot already, or you're going to go somewhere provision of God. Now, I will dare say, few of us this morning, God, will say, God, would you please give me food today? If you don't give me food today, I'm going to starve. We, we lose sight of our dependence upon God. I think one of the dangers of modern life is we have lost sight of our dependency on God. Back in Jesus' day, you're sort of subsistence farmers, and you need a good harvest if you're going to eat. And if it doesn't rain, I might not be able to make it through the winter. There's a sense of dependence on God. So sometimes we'll pray, God, would you meet our needs? But we're really trusting ourselves to do it. Calvin said this, Mankind is so stuffed with such depravity that for the sake of mere performance, men often beseech God for many things, that they are dead sure will apart from his kindness Come to them from some other source or already lie in their possessions. Here's what he's saying is we will pray, God, give us this day our daily bread. We're like, if he doesn't come through, there's already food in the pantry. We're not really trusting God. This calls us to trust his provision. And this is what is so incredible, beloved. God is so generous and kind that he gives us not only our daily bread, but he so often gives us our daily cake as well. He not only gives us the necessities of life, but he gives us luxuries above and beyond that which we need for mere survival. He's given given us homes that have air conditioning. Think of this, through most of human history, there was no such thing as air conditioning. You would suffer through just the, the, the heat and the humidity. He's given beyond just what we need for today, but he's given us retirement accounts and insurance programs and savings and tax returns and all of these things that go beyond just having enough food for the next 24 hours. All of it a gift of his grace. So I'll call you to thankfulness. Give us a stay our daily bread ought to also spur our hearts to thank God for giving it to us yesterday. What grace that God gives that he grants to us our necessities and our luxuries. And he does all of this, beloved, in spite of our infrequent asking and in spite of our immense ingratitude. We don't ask, and yet God still gives it. If God only gave us what we asked for, very, very few of us would be alive right now. If God only gave us what we thanked him for, we'd have next to nothing. What a reminder. But the spiritual needs we're we're given in verse 4, 
God didn't just make us bodies. We're not just sort of sacks of chemicals on our way to becoming stardust, sort of the secular viewpoint. You're just kind of here and then poof, you're going to one day disappear. No, we are embodied souls. We have physical and spiritual needs, and prayer addresses both of these. Verse 4, forgive us our sins and then lead us not into temptation. Our great spiritual needs are for forgiveness and for divine protection. Now, verse 4 has tripped a few people up. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. It almost sounds like, well, i got to forgive other people in order that God forgives me. I sort of have to earn God's forgiveness by being a forgiving person. I think that kind of gets it backwards. Jesus tells a parable about a guy who's been forgiven this immense debt. And then he goes after his you know, fellow servant and grabs him by the neck and says, you owe me 50 cents. He's like, hey, if you've been forgiven so much, you ought to forgive this other guy over here. Let me put it this way. Forgiven people, forgive. All right, if you've been forgiven by God, then it makes sense that you would extend forgiveness to others. By the same token, it seems highly hypocritical to ask God to do for you what you yourself are unwilling to do for others. This is not a quid pro quo. We are forgiven on one basis and one basis only, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he is what faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have no sin, we, we call God a liar. First John tells us. Then chapter 2 says, My little children, I write these things unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The basis on which we are forgiven, according to 1 John, is Jesus stands before the throne of God above as our strong and perfect plea, defending us. The basis on which we are forgiven is that the the, the sinless Savior died and my sin was placed on him and he satisfied God's wrath. So I'm ultimately forgiven because of what Jesus does. But when I ask God to forgive me, I ought to forgive others also. Is there anyone in your life that you have not forgiven? They've wronged me. They've hurt me. Until you forgive them, it's like God's forgiveness is put on on hold, and the the fellowship and the enjoyment of the relationship with God as his children cannot be enjoyed. If we're going to ask God for forgiveness, we ought also to be a channel of forgiveness to others. Now, lead us not into temptation. This also trips people up, because James 1.13 says, God does not tempt us with evil, right? God's holy. God's righteous. Remember the word temptation. There's one word that can mean either testing or temptation. It covers sort of both ideas. It can be a test, a difficult situation into which we enter. It can also be an allurement to evil. And here's the reality. Those are often one and the same events. Think about the life of Job. It's a test that Job goes into. From God's perspective, it is a test that is going to prove Job's faithfulness. Satan's goal in the exact same event is to get Job to deny God. So think of it this way, you're, you're in a test, okay, you're, you're a student, go back to your days as being a student, you're like, you've got to take a test. In that test, there is actually a temptation to look over at the person next to you and steal their answers. The event that proves a test for you to display knowledge can also be a temptation to do something that is wrong. So to pray, pray, pray lead us not into the temptation to say, God, keep me from a situation in which I might undergo a test in which I might turn away from you. Protect me from hard testing and difficulty that may be an allurement to sin. A Christian facing suffering, that is a test from God to strengthen our faith, also faces the temptation to compromise. A believer enduring the agonies of cancer or sickness or aging, a 
test from God to strengthen and improve our faith, also faces a temptation to become bitter and angry and disillusioned. So this petition is saying, God, I'm, I'm weak. I am so weak spiritually. Protect me from the evil of my own heart. So pray dependently. Do you pray to God in a way that is dependent on Him? Or do you pray to God in a way that, hey, it's all going to be okay whether or not I pray? If prayer were suddenly yanked out of your life, where all of a sudden you're like, prayer no longer was a thing, how different would your life be? Would it be materially different? Or is prayer such a, an appendix to your life that things would go on as they currently are? We should pray dependently. And we move on now into this next section. Jesus has told us, in a sense, what to pray for. Okay, we ought to, to pray for God's glory, for his kingdom to come in, for our needs, for our forgiveness, for our protection. But now beginning in verse 5, he's going to describe, as one commentator put it, sort of the worldview out of which, the worldview out of which prayer arises. What, what, sort of, what sort of atmosphere, what sort of oxygen do we breathe in that makes prayer sort of the natural thing to do? Well, here's what it is. It is a worldview in which we see God as a gracious, generous Father who is more eager to meet our needs than we are to ask Him. Right? That's what what He's going to describe. And this is a call, number four, for us to pray persistently. To pray persistently. So He's called us to pray distinctly in a Christ-like and in a Christian way that, that sees Jesus as our Savior and praying to the Father. We are to pray reverently for these divine priorities to our Father in heaven, for His kingdom to come, and for His name to be glorified. We pray dependently. We pray, number four, persistently. You ever find yourself praying and you sort of run out of steam after like three minutes? You're like, okay, I prayed for my family, the church, the president, the day, thank God for the food, and now I... We kind of flag in zeal. Or you pray for a need. There's a great need you're praying for, the salvation of a loved one, the conversion of a family member, the meeting of some pressing need. And you pray for week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and it does not seem that the answer comes and you're tempted to give up. Jesus gives us a parable here. By the way, he gives us a companion parable in Luke 18. Men ought to pray and not to faint. That calls us to persistence. So here's what he does in verse 5. Which of you shall have a friend who will come to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves? Because a friend of mine has come on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot arise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Here's the illustration. So an illustration that calls us to persistence. We've got to understand a little bit of background here. Why would someone be showing up at midnight? Well, in, in ancient Palestine, especially during the, the hot time of year, people would travel at night, right? If it's 120 degrees outside, no air conditioning, I mentioned that, right? Um, you're not going to go travel in the middle of the day. You'll travel after the sun goes down. So someone's traveling at night. They show up at, at, at somebody's door. Here's another fact we need to understand about the culture. It was a, a, a crucial part of the culture to show radical hospitality. You don't just tell the person, hey, sorry, like we're busy, you, you came unannounced. No, it was sort of an ethical demand that you show hospitality. We did that series on Abraham and the angels show up and Abraham pulls out all the stops. That was expected. That was sort of culturally required to not do that. Would have been, would have been a major, not just a major faux pas, but would have been a, a, a major insult. So the individual who has the, the traveler showing up at midnight is under sort of moral obligation to show them hospitality. So here you are, friend shows up at midnight, 
I don't have any bread. I don't have anything to provide a meal for him. I can't show him the duty of hospitality. But I know my next-door neighbor probably has some bread. I know he's got extra. He mentioned something about that. So off you go, run to your next-door neighbor's house, pound at the door. It's 1 in the morning. I need bread right now. This is urgent. Now, verse 8 gives us the point. It says, okay, even though the person inside the house, okay, the homeowner, we've got two characters here. We've got the needy neighbor, and we've got the sleepy, na- uh, sleepy homeowner. Even though the sleepy homeowner won't get up just for sheer friendship, He'd be like, okay, friendship will only do so much for you here, buddy, right? Getting up at 1 in the morning is not one of the things that goes on the list of things that friends do. But just your sheer shamelessness of showing up at 1 in the morning, that'll get me out of bed. So he he rattles off a list of excuses in verse 7. The door is now shut. Now, that's more than just sort of doing the deadbolt and setting the alarm for the night. This would have required a a big board to go on the door. It's been bolted. There's quite an effort involved with locking the door. So the kids are already in bed. Now, don't get the idea that there's one bed here, but sort of probably one room where everybody slept. So if I'm going to get up and answer the door, I'm going to be tripping over the kids on my way to the door. The whole house is going to be woken up. Everything is going to be thrown on its head. This is going to be majorly inconvenient to do. But verse 8 says, even if he won't do it because of friendship, he will do it because of shamelessness. That word importunity. Anybody use the word importunity in the last week? Didn't think so. Here's one of these words that you read that you're like, I don't know what this means. This is not a word that we use. What's going on here? Well, the the, the word in the original, like I mentioned, means shamelessness. He says just the sheer audacity, the sheer audacity of a guy to show up in the middle of the night. You know what? You know, that that takes some backbone to show up. I'm going to give you the loaves of bread that you need for that reason alone. Now, Jesus applies the parable here in verse 9. And so I say unto you, verses 9 and 10 are not beginning a new thought, but are applying this one. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and him that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Here's the comparison. If a sleepy homeowner will meet the needs of a needy neighbor at midnight because of audacity, how much more will God meet those needs? It's not that God needs to be woken up by our prayers. That's not the point. It's sort of an argument from from lesser to greater. Your next-door neighbor will give you bread because you have the audacity to ask him at one in the morning. Here's your heavenly Father who is far more eager to meet our needs than we are to ask him. So pray, persist in prayer. So what we have in verse 9 are escalating terms. Be asking, seek, knock. So asking is requesting, seeking is, is requesting, and acting and lo- looking to God, and knocking is, is man, there's persistence here. And the, the tense of these in, in the original is, is a present. It's not just ask one time and then, oh, well, he didn't do it. But it's keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Did you notice the promise got repeated twice? Ask and it will be given, seek you'll find, knock it will be opened. Verse 10 repeats it, for everyone who asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and him that knocks it shall be opened. It's almost like the promise is extravagantly more than the command. So you ask, seek, knock, and God is eager and ready to answer. This calls us to persistence. We don't persist in prayer because we have to twist the arm of a reluctant God to act for us. We persist in prayer precisely for the opposite reason, because he is eager to answer those who ask. God is not a sleepy, sleepy neighbor who has to be stirred to act. He's a loving father who's eager to help his kids. He's not a, and if a grouchy neighbor can be summoned to act, how much more a glorious and gracious God. 
So persist in prayer. Keep on praying. Seek his face. Set aside times of prayer. Come out to prayer meeting. When prayers are being offered here in church, don't let your mind wander, but seek his face. Tomorrow morning when you, when you get up, have a plan for how you're going to have a focused time of prayer. Maybe you do what I do. You go for a walk. You get out into the creation, and that's your time to pray. Maybe you have a, a place, a room in the house where you go pray, but this calls us to persistence in prayer. God is so ready to answer. I'm going to give you a final hallmark of this prayer life that Jesus calls us to is this. We should pray eagerly. All of this has called us, yes, pray, pray, pray. But what is missing so often in our lives is the motivation to be like, oh, I get to pray. This, this is awesome. Not I have to pray, I better pray, I ought to pray, but I want to pray. Verse 11 gives us sort of this, this eagerness, this relationship that exists. If a son asks bread of any father, will he give him a stone, if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? So a kid comes and he asks you to give him fish for dinner. Like, Dad, can we, can we go down and get some fish? Sure, son. And then you hand him a cotton mouth, slithering around and, and, and biting. Like you say, no dad would do that. That would be grotesque. Or he says, Dad, can I, can I have a boiled egg for lunch? Yeah, sure, here you go. And boom, drop a scorpion into his hand. Like, I gotcha. Oops, you're dead now. He says, no human father would do that. He uses this grotesque example of... No earthly father would do that. Anyone who did, we would say, is obviously a psychopath, right? And needs to be locked away or executed. Anybody who would do that. It says, under normal circumstances, no earthly father would do that. Now, verse 13. If ye then, being evil, listen, even the best dad in the whole world is still evil in the sight of God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Sometimes we get this idea that, if you're a good family man and you have good family values, you're, you're a good guy. And on one level, on a human level, yes, but not in the eyes of God. Jesus assumes the universal depravity and lostness and neediness of humanity. Which for, just, to, just to throw this out there, if you're not a Christian here today, in God's eyes, you are evil and you need to be redeemed. But Jesus has provided a way through his death, his burial, his resurrection to all who will repent and believe. So if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more? Okay, this how much more is what calls us to pray eagerly. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? So pray eagerly because your Father is good. Even wicked earthly fathers know how to give good things to their kids. How much more will your Father, who is infinitely good, infinitely holy, infinitely benevolent, give the best gifts to His kids? He will not give you poison. He won't give you snakes and scorpions. By the way, in the context of Luke, snakes and scorpions refer to demonic oppression. He's not going to bring demonic oppression. He's not going to bring things that will be bad and deadly for you spiritually. That's a powerful point, isn't it? Now, some people will say, be careful what you pray for. God might just give it to you. Uh, No, God will never give something bad to his children. Sometimes we don't know how we should pray as we ought. Right? We, we pray for stuff that's dumb that we shouldn't be. We're like kids who are asking for cotton candy when we really need broccoli. And God in his kindness will give us the broccoli, not the cotton candy. Pray boldly. Pray eagerly. He's not going to give you things that are badful or harmful to you. Now, let me just throw this out there. God will never answer our prayers with anything less than his best. He is too good and too holy to do that. So sometimes we will pray and God will answer our prayer by bringing along the way the wonderful, delightful gift of suffering. 
If God gives us the gift of suffering, beloved, it is because what he knows is good and best for us. We can take comfort in that, beloved, of knowing that even the things that we look at and say, this is a bad, horrible thing, this is unenjoyable, comes from a father who's saying, no, my child, this is what is best for you, for you to be conformed to the image of my son, and this can only happen through hardship. He brings loss, and when he brings hardship into our lives, it is still his good gift to his children. We pray eagerly because he's good and because he is generous. And he gives us the example of the ultimate gift that could ever be given, the Holy Spirit. The greatest gift that he could give to us is the Holy Spirit, a blood-bought gift that comes to God's children, the wedding ring for those who belong to him, who are the bride of Christ, the seal that we belong to him, according to Ephesians chapter 1. Gives that gift. Now, for the disciples, they're still looking forward to Pentecost. We know that they prayed in Acts chapter 1. Then Acts chapter 2, the Spirit came upon them. We're on the other side of Pentecost. We get the Spirit the moment that we are born again. But the point still remains. God answers prayer through the agency and through the working and through the gift of His Spirit. He's generous. So, beloved, pray, pray eagerly because the God you're praying to is not a grouchy homeowner. He's not an unkind father, but He is generous and He is good and He is holy. And He says, come unto me boldly and ask and you will receive. Pray knowing that this good and generous God is more eager to answer than we are to ask. See, unlike Muslims and Buddhists, Catholics that we talked about at the beginning of the message, we don't pray out of just a religious duty that I've got to check some boxes off and hopefully make it in the end. We pray out of true affection. Did you notice Jesus begins and ends the same way? He starts off with Father and he ends with Father. We pray out of this relationship that we have through Christ. We're motivated to pray because we've got the example of God the Son in verse 1. We see him as a perfect man praying, and that's just pray like Jesus, the example of the Son. We're motivated because of the character of God the Father. He's good and he's generous, and we pray because of the promise of God the Holy Spirit. The greatest reason to pray, beloved, is God himself. God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity in this text, the the big bow, God saying, here I am, the, the greatest gift that I can give is myself. Relationship with the Father through the Son, the gift of the Spirit, compelling us to pray. So may God help us to pray, to pray distinctly, to pray reverently, to pray dependently and passionately and eagerly to Him. Father, Teach us to pray.